Hello there and welcome back to Range Anxiety. This is episode two, known as Battle of the Ballers. The reason for the name, I'm going to get into in a minute. But first, let's cover off uh, episode one, the beginning. It's been a great success. We've had a lot of listeners all around the world, mainly Australia, of course. That's who uh, people know who Martin, or where people know who Martin Donnan is and, and what I do. And that's where our listening base is. But we've had some excellent feedback. A lot of good emails. Nobody's actually told me to shut up yet, which is fantastic. And the support's good because we've got some new ideas for the show. And uh, I think the most important of those is in upcoming episodes, we're going to introduce the concept of having some guests on the show. Now, these might be just general people off the street, although they will be what I like to call normal people. They'll be people that you've heard about in the car game over the years. They'll be people with a bit of cred. And most importantly, there'll be some people that have done some really exciting things with cars and have some great stories to tell. Um, you know, for example, one of my guests used to actually collect the rubber from his burnouts put it in jars, label them, and then go back and sample them for their aromatic uh, pleasure or <laughs> taste or flavour, whatever you want to call it, later. I mean, who would do such a thing? i tell you who, one of my upcoming guests. So, yep, fantastic. Without any further ado, let's get into Battle of the Ballers. It's, something I've, it's a story I've been uh, looking forward to telling and I think it's a story that uh, you guys and girls out there will enjoy. If you remember in episode one, we covered off at the end saying that a lot of the GDR scene people were at the point where they were getting sick of just the simple chip and exhaust bits and pieces on their cars. And I spoke a little bit about uh, Danny Verhumas from Japanese Motorsport who kind of pioneered bringing in some hard parts for GDRs back in about 98. GDRs were, R32s were getting a bit on then, about six, seven years old, they were well out of warranty. Um, and the R33 was just hitting the scene. Unfortunately, never made it to Australia as an official import from Nissan Motorco. However, they were appearing in prestige yards as brand new $100,000, $110,000 cars and fortunately I, I had a couple of friends at the time that bought these as well as a few friends with R32s and they were having a little bit of rivalry with each other and there goes my mistakes again and they wanted to go fast so they started buying parts and a lot of them started coming to me to tune them so yeah this is kind of where the whole GDR thing began and you know a lot of it was probably due to um, both Danny and myself. Uh, when we were in Japan, we'd go to the local drag strips and there was one in the highlands uh, above Osaka called Central Circuit. Central Circuit was an amazing track. It was often very hot or, or very cold and, and misty. Uh, but there were street guys and shop guys there in R32s and R33s that were just doing mental things to these cars. These things were torque steering all over the track. They all had uh, drag radials. I think Nitto Triple uh, Five Extreme was the tyre of choice back then. They all had stick shifts. You know, there were no 
Oh, there are a couple of fledgling sequentials then, like the OS, but mainly all stick shifts. And these guys were torque steering all over the track, squatting, blowing big uh, trails, plumes of smoke out the back of the things. But they were going fast. You know, it, on an unprepared surface, they were banging out 10s, 9s, even some high 8s, and using all the best name brand parts. These, you know, these were really exciting things to watch. And we filmed them um, with... My filming company back then, uh, we released a series of videos from Japan called Hard Tuned Imports, and we photographed them, and we uh, published them in, in uh, local magazines. So, yeah, all of a sudden, the excitement started to build, and there was one character who, who I still do a lot of work with now. His name was uh, John Munro. He had an R33 GDR. He still has it to this day. But he was probably one of the first to pull the trigger on a big Japanese build when he said, yeah, you know what? I want one of those OS Geek and three liter uh, engines. And at that point, I mean, it was a lot of money back then for one of these engines, a good engine. Um, but at that point, the floodgates in South Australia and indeed Australia opened. I mean, it wasn't just South Australia that was starting to go nuts. There were some players, uh, there was a guy who had the famous Xvita Mini site, it was called. He had an R33, I believe. He used to go under the tag of Mario. And, you know, that thing had about 10 squillion horsepower. And eventually it ended up running a good number. That was out of Sydney. There was um, the madman Theo Woollett in Queensland who was banging away later in the piece, but banging away nines on a uh, R32 GDR with a stick. There was, you know, other famous people out of the... Uh, Skyline Forum days, a guy called Twoogle, uh, and if he's listening, he will know. Uh, he will know. You know what I'm talking about and who he is. But no one was going really fast just yet. In about ninety-seven, ninety-eight, there was a left field car that came out of nowhere that wasn't part of the, the scene that I tuned. It wasn't one of my mates. Wasn't someone I knew. It was a barely stock. Um, R32 GDR clutch, you know, had a piston and rod engine in it, had like some agricultural kind of tractor-style turbo on it, and it was tuned by uh, a local crowd in South Australia called Allen Engineering with an Autronic on it, you know, nice programmable ECU. And that just came out of the blue one day and went bang, 10.8 or 10.9. And that was the first 10-second GDR that I was aware of outside of Japan. And it just happened at one of our four, six and rotor drag mates and everyone just sort of stood there and looked at each other. We were still running like 11 twos or 11 threes and thinking that was, you know, not too bad. And this cat just comes along, goes bang, 10 second pass. Thank you very much. And that made people get really, really serious. Um, I've kind of got my timeline a bit messed up here because John uh, Munro didn't buy that three liter engine until a bit later, but he did buy a brand new uh, R33 GDR and just proceed to start modifying it. For a start, you know, he figured that it was a good thing to modify because it uh, wasn't blue, which was his favourite colour, and so that it was silver. So we just started stripping it and we put like, uh, I think they were 3037 turbo, 2835 turbocharger HKS kit on it. The beautiful Power FC, you know, uh, plug in Apexy computer. And yeah, I, I, I remember very, very clearly the first time uh, that we ran a 10 second pass in that. Uh, it was a little bit tricky at first. There were lots of 11 O's, 11 ones at 127, 128 mile an hour. 
And, you know, along came the day where we ran a 10. And eventually everyone got so fast and spent so much money on these things that Kingsley's 10-second pass just sort of faded into oblivion and everyone was chasing low nines, high eights, and on the story goes. Um, you know, there were some great people involved in that scene. And, and interestingly enough, most, or, 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 the, or the two big players in South Australia that raced these cars with some success still have their cars to this day. You know, they kind of never parted with them. And it, a lot of it was probably uh, probably because they spent so much money on the things. But they also kind of held uh, a special place in history. You know, we didn't get the Supra over here and we didn't have all of the 2JZ madness that they had in the USA. We just were stuck with the, you know, the humble little GDR and, and we did pretty well with it. You know, it was, uh, it was a fantastic thing. Um, in this time, I was uh, uh, lucky enough to... You know, people say, why were you buying all these Japanese parts? Well, I was lucky enough to visit um, the Trust factory uh, in Japan. I think it was up... I think it was up Machiba somewhere. We'd gone to Tokyo Auto Salon. It, it was up north. And, uh, you know, these guys were sitting there, these really talented uh, craftsmen were sitting there stitching these manifolds together by hand, stitching these intercoolers together by hand. You know, they were so perfectly made, it almost looked semi-robotic in a way, you know, and, and you would look at these things and you think a machine's making this, but no, no, it was Japanese skilled tradesmen sitting there stitching these parts together for like a, a perfect fitment and a perfect finish. And sure, the stuff was expensive and by the time it landed here and got into local hands and on local cars it was super dear but it did work you know like for, for a long time there um australia's fastest gdr was an r32 gdr had uh trust t67s on it the second fastest one at the time had you know the hks 2835 pro kit or whatever it was on it you know these japanese parts were fantastic and it, you kind of don't see that in the scene anymore because as the whole Japanese performance car scene has started to wind down over the past, you know, 15 years or pretty much after the R34 and the 200SX stock production, the S15, you know, kind of the cars got a bit softer and the industry kind of ran out of puff. So people that were then started going faster in these GDRs, they started, you know, adopting off-the-shelf technology uh, here in Australia, such as, you know, big single um, Garrett turbochargers and precision turbos and a bit of US influence. And, you know, they went very fast, but but the game, the game shifted, the romantic notion of building these cars out of JDM bits, um, you know, to be truly JDM and uh, be compliant to what they called the RH9 Club, a bit on that for those of you that don't know the RH9 club we saw these uh, we saw these stickers on these GDRs in in Japan RH9 it actually stands for record holders 9 seconds club so the rules were quite simple you had to run a street legal tire or a street based drag radial tire you had to run a stick shift of proper manual transmission in your GDR and it had to run on petrol i.e. no methanol. So, you know, like a, a VP109 or, a, you know, C16 or, you know, they were using those fuels in Japan, the American fuels. But gasoline, stick shift, 
drag radials and everyone wanted a piece. Well, all the guys I knew wanted a piece of this RH9 action and, you know, a lot of them got carried away and uh, put stickers on before they'd done the nine, but not the big boys. They all kind of waited till I'd done it until they put their stickers on, you know, because they kind of, they kind of earned it. And it was, it was really, really good thing. So these guys raced for quite a few years and I think all of them ran out of puff or interest or grew up or, or moved on with life by, you know, 2002 or three. And there was sort of this big black hole of uh, GDR drag racing after that in the country. I mean, people were still running them, but nobody was sort of doing new things or, or pioneering new technologies up until the last few years, that is, when a real serious uh, bunch of players got involved with building some real serious GDRs um, on the east coast of Australia, primarily uh, New South Wales, a bit of Victoria, a bit of Queensland. But, you know, these things are now running six-second passes. They're just doing some crazy, crazy things with GDRs. And they still, I mean, they'll save their streetcars and they'll still put up the odd video of them, you know, coughing and spluttering their way through a McDonald's drive-through. Um, but they're kind of not. I mean, they're not streetcars. I mean, this whole loose sort of description, yes, it can be driven on the street. No, it's not going over the pits and passing any roadworthy. So don't kid yourselves there. Who cares, though? They are fantastic cars. However, they did lose a little bit of the flavour, a little bit of that GDR flavour. Sure, they're incredible. Some of them billet block, you know, 1,800 horsepower machines. You know, you cannot take that away from these things. But to me, it kind of lost a little bit when they started putting automatics in them. You know, they're still four-wheel drive, and there was some clever engineering that went on uh, with making the Turbo 400 or Power Glide or whatever it is that they use or was that they're using hook up to the Atessa four-wheel drive system and work, you know, like a GDR. But, you know, rather than sitting there and, and banging away a, a nine or 10,000 rev limiter on the line and then sidestepping the clutch and watching them hop and, you know, the driver's on half lock and all of this sort of thing, they kind of sit there and they lazily spool up after the lights have gone green and then just, you know, blast off like a SpaceX sort of Falcon 9 rocket. Um, fast, effective, Probably not super great for heads up style racing, but someone's probably going to send me an abusive email now and say, mate, you can race these things heads up all day, every day. Personally, I can't see it, but you know, I'm sure there'll be some people that have got some pretty strong opinions there. Where is this all going to stop? Well, no one really knows, do they? I mean, now we've got street tyre or, or drag radio equipped R32 GDRs um, knocking on the door of or going faster than uh, the world record holding R35 GDRs that have got a lot more power and a lot more, well, allegedly a lot more sophistication to them. The problem there is that the R35 GDRs are all retaining the six-speed twin-clutch, you know, manual style transmission that the vehicle was engineered with. So the argument is once you change the transmission, it's akin almost to changing the rear end to make these things into drag cars. Who cares? I don't really care. They're all fast, they're all wonderful, and, and it's fantastic to see Australia leading the way. And, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly 
always been the way with Australia leading the way in, in this kind of aftermarket uh, high-tech high uh, automotive era. You know, we had companies, as I mentioned earlier, like Autronic uh, with their world-leading ECUs, and, you know, everyone knows Motec. In fact, the majority of Americans I speak to think that Motec's an American company. You know, they're that well-known and that successful, but no, they came out of, I believe, Bayswater. I visited the factory when I was a dealer of theirs back some time ago in Victoria. You know, it was a Victorian thing, started by a guy called Richard Bendall, who I'm still friends with on Facebook, and, you know, he's long out of it now, but it was just some guys with a good idea, and they used the Aussie engineering and know-how to take everything to the next level. Um, and speaking of which, it, it was also quite funny to see how the original 32 and 33 guys uh, that I know in Adelaide all very quickly made the transition once they decided, okay, well, I'm sick of racing my R32 or my R33. Um, they all dabbled with them a little bit on the track. In fact, John Munro still uses his and it's it's super fast, even though it doesn't have ABS. It's got a, a manual pump for the uh, a Tessa system in it to, to give pressure to the transfer case. He still uses his on the racetrack, that fantastic thing that we've got in Adelaide known as the Bend Motorsport Park. He uses it there and does some absolutely stunning lap times in the thing. But he doesn't consider it his serious sort of race car anymore. He considers it a blast from the past and almost like a Japanese muscle car. So what did these guys do? Well, they kind of went out and all early adopters, like the two big fast guys in Adelaide with 32s and 33s, both went out and bought very, very early edition, um, pre-Australian release, import R35 GDRs and uh, rolled up their sleeves and got working on them and got those things going pretty pretty darn fast as well. Um, and it's kind of like they were 10 or 15 years ahead of the game because you, you mark my words here, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at predicting this stuff. You know, when I told everyone in 2002 that the XR6 Turbo Barrow of the World uh, would be the next VL Turbo as far as the aftermarket is concerned, I reckon I've been proven pretty darn right there, you know, and all of these shops that had VL Turbos that were going fast, and some of them are just blindingly fast things with a single cam Nissan motor in them. They've all moved to 32s. Give it some time, give it till about 2025, and those Eastern Seaboard people will be running amazing times in uh, R35 GDRs. That I can almost guarantee you, it's just the natural progression of everything. Um, but because I was exposed to the R35 GDR um, very, very early in the piece when there was no support for it in Australia. I mean, I was working around one in, in 2000 and I think it was 2008. Now, things weren't even coming here till April 2009. We got, or I got, a really good chance to get up close and personal with these things on the hoist because no one knew anything about them. No one knew how to fix them. Nissan Australia weren't um, supplying spare parts for them. And indeed... At one stage, I believe, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, sort of had like a, a, a blanket ban against supplying parts um, to grey import R35 GDRs. I believe they will now. I believe it's all opened up a bit. But back then, 
it was like we just discovered fire. Um, people would look at you driving down the road. They would be hanging out their windows with their camera phones, taking pictures of you driving. You know, maybe it wasn't the car. Maybe it's just because I'm so darn good looking. Um, maybe not. But it was heady, heady stuff, especially trying to get our minds uh, around the way that the transmissions and engines talk to each other because you heard stuff, you know, on TV back then, one of the big TV shows where they were telling you that, that the engine and transmission were specially matched and hand-built by Japanese engineers and that, you know, you couldn't swap components out of one into another because everything had its bespoke place. That actually turned out to be a load of crap. Um, you can jam any engine out of any R35 into any other R35 and any um, transmission, even the transmission ECUs will swap around. But we didn't know any of this back then. And there was no real way of, of tuning them. And the Japanese just weren't doing anything that hardcore with them. They had actually run out of wind in their sails by then and the whole Japanese aftermarket, apart from some suspension arms and some pretty cool looking, you know, shiny blue, purple, green titanium exhaust, they were doing nothing. It took a company by the name of Cobb Tuning in America with their Cobb Access port to interface to the R35 GDR and, you know, you could suck the program out, you could do some basic stuff, you know, you could tune it with all of the crummy factory boost control and, and timing systems that were in them. They were pretty pretty much related to an ET Pulsar, that ECU inside, the way they coded it anyway, just a, a big version on steroids. But it was really left to an English guy. I don't even know, I, I forget. I probably did know his real name. He was on the R35 GDR forums back then, a guy by the name of Thistle he used to go by out of, I think the Midlands in the UK somewhere, he just said, well, you know, people are wanting to go fast in these and do 10s and 9s and whatever. Um, I'm going to rewrite my code in these things and make it all happen. So the big boys at Cobb Tuning heard about this and they had this private, I think he was a doctor, uh, some sort of medical professional, uh, do all of this software work for them and he rewrote the boost control. He rewrote the way the timing was structured. He rewrote airflow tables and the things and he did a magic, magic job of it and uh, put switchable maps in the things and, and all sorts of, uh, made made the, made the boost gauge flash if the engine knocked so you knew your tuning was being a bit more aggressive. And he basically turned the whole thing with R35s, uh, R35 GDRs on its ear. Um, because all of a sudden you could access them and his whole ethos of, of, of making sure that you could make over a, a thousand wheel horsepower in an R35 GDR on the standard ECU just opened Pandora's box and all of a sudden the time started to come. I think it was uh, AMS in Chicago were the first into the nines with like a 9.8 or something and you know some we had some of our parts in, in that car and the transmission at the time so it was quite a a proud time for me and the little old South Aussies. But now, if you're not running a seven and knocking on the door of a six, you're not even going to make the top 50 list. And and 
these guys are driving these things on the road in the US. I mean, you can get away with a lot more than you can uh, <laughs> over here, that's for sure. I mean, they can even carry handguns in them in a lot of states. Um, and they put up pictures of, yeah, here's where I'm packing my piece in my uh, Godzilla. Um, but it shows how quickly technology has allowed us to move on. And I have some great stories uh, from the R35 era. And I think when I get my first guest in, we might start to touch on that. But I think maybe next episode of Range Anxiety, and yes, guys, it's been 25 minutes. We're heading up towards that magical half-hour mark. I think next episode uh, of the podcast will touch on some more in-depth parts of the R35 and what people are kind of doing wrong because because I was doing it so long ago, I'm seeing people now that are going to kick my, you know, kick my ass out of the business because they're so good, and I see them just making the mistakes I made 10 years ago, and they won't listen. Um, and... You know, I just sit back and think, you poor owner, you're about to lighten your load of a few hundred thousand and nothing's going to work. So if you are one of these owners or know one of these owners or are just interested in hearing about cool cars and how good these things can be, I'll, the podcast is a little bit shorter than I first was expecting it to be and and wanting it to be, but I think we'll run it a little bit more often. I'm pretty cool with sitting down on a weekend and just chatting away into the microphone, providing you guys and girls still want to hear it out there. I mean, tell me if you don't. But I think I think we're going to start to focus, at least until I get some guests on board, on a little bit more technical stuff to get you up to speed so you can work out how everything works and just maybe learn a thing or two. So until next time, I hope you enjoyed Battle of the Ballers. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the history of the GDR in Australia. Stay tuned, stay safe, stay away from the COVID and thank you for tuning in to Range Anxiety.